You're listening to What the History, a podcast where two nerds talk about some awesome, crazy, random stuff you probably don't remember learning about, but you're going to now. Hi, nerds. This is Sarah and Casey, um, and we are here with an episode that we wish we were not here with. So that's just a depressing way to start. Yep. Um, is we had another episode planned for this week. Uh, but we decided that we should talk about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, RBG. Yeah. So we took some time to to do some research and decided that that was going to be our our badass babe for this week instead of our original plan. Yeah, I think we had um, I mean, we had a pretty good scathing why Columbus was a piece of shit episode plan. Yeah. But I think we both felt like this was definitely more important and way more timely. You will continue to be a piece of shit so we can do that at right. any other time. <laughs> right. Right. Next Columbus Day, yes. he'll still have been a garbage human being. He's been a piece of shit since like the 1400s, so it's yes. going to be okay if we delay that one just a little bit. Yeah. And like Sarah said, this is like, she was always on our list, but I mean... Yeah. <sighs> Even just my whole, like, I just feel more somber than when we normally start episodes. You know what I mean? I just feel sad. Same. But you know what? I, I'm trying to take this as, like, an opportunity to learn more about, like, really how much she contributed and also learn more about, like, I guess you could say, like, my role or I guess our role as, like, white women and how we need to kind of continue not this like legacy of white feminism but like understanding that there are not always wonderful perfect things about people and putting people on pedestals like this I feel like can just be detrimental yeah definitely so I feel like um you know I, I think really just looking at the things that she accomplished there's so much that I personally take for granted because you don't again you never really learn about this shit in school which is what infuriates me like, I yeah, knew she was. I feel like you don't realize how recent it all was, too, like, into the 70s and things like that. Right. That was not that long ago. Yeah. Like, I wish that I had gotten more exposure to women like her. Or yeah. Just people like her. Because, like, even, you know, looking at pictures and I watched that uh, documentary, RBG. And yeah, that was really good. It was great. But it was also so infuriating to just see the same old white dudes and it's just so not reflective of what this country is supposed to be you know yeah so i'm sure you'll hear me talk about my feminine rage uh throughout the whole episode so (laughs) disclosure on that welcome um but i do have some really cool stuff about her that i got from my research and i'm just kind of really pumped to get into her so yeah i'm excited yeah i'm gonna just go right for it so uh she was born in brooklyn new york at the beth moses hospital on march 15th 1933 under the name joan ruth bader pisces she was actually oh was she yeah are you a pisces oh wait yeah yeah yeah, wait, I'm, March, March 8, I'm March 18th, so just a couple That's days right. later. So she's a oh, Pisces. So close. What's a Pisces like? Um, We cry a lot. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Pisces are like, they're a water sign and they're like super emotional. And uh, she had to have a lot of other stuff going on in her chart because Pisces are generally known as being very like flighty and dreamy and not practical. And so I feel wow. like she definitely had a lot of other stuff happening in her chart to like counteract it. 
but Pisces I mean, are generally... everything about that is the exactly. complete opposite of her. <laughs> but they are very like empathetic and like emotional and that sort of thing. And I can see that piece of like caring about other people and all that coming through. Yeah, um, so it's but like I emotional like... but not emotive necessarily. At yeah, least in her case. In her case, okay. for sure. Yeah, because I'll definitely get into that too when I talk a little bit about her parents and her upbringing. But um, right. So like I said, she was the second daughter. Uh, of two, one was a first generation American, the other had just emigrated from Poland. So her father emigrated from Odessa, Ukraine, and her mother was first generation Polish, and her parents emigrated from Krakow uh, several years earlier um, before she was born. Okay. So I thought it was interesting that again, we somehow keep talking about Ukraine and Poland. Yeah. Up. Um, but again, these were actually two really big areas for persecution of Jews. And this is even before World War II, because she's born in 1933 at pretty much the the height of the Great Depression. So like I said, um, she was technically first generation on her father's side and she was second generation on her mother's. Neither of her parents went to college. Her father wanted to go, but Jews were not allowed to go to college in Russian schools. Poland and fine. yeah, uh, I, did, I read that and I was like, I'm fucking not surprised. Um, right. But her mother has this like interesting kind of college story. So there's actually two accounts that I saw that I feel like it's probably a combination of both as history normally is. But the first one says that her mother was really active in education and she was a good student and she graduated from high school at 15 years old, which is pretty awesome and pretty young. Yeah. But she wasn't able to go to higher education or college and instead went to work in a garment factory. So the two accounts I read were one, she couldn't go because um, she was so self-sacrificing that she was like, no, I don't need to go to college. My brother should go instead. And she got a job to help support him. Yeah. The second was that the family just straight up was like, no, we're paying for your brother to go to college. Go work in a garment factory. Interesting. Yeah. So I kind of felt like this was probably a little bit of both because I imagine that like yeah. the way that Ruth talks about her mother and the way that her mother brings Ruth up is like very much all about education mm -hmm. but also very much about independence so i feel like there is this air that celia knew that she was the lesser of the two sexes i guess but right. didn't necessarily agree with that but sort of just said well education's important you know i'll help support my brother um because then ruth later goes on in other interviews to basically say things like she really admired her mother's like self-sacrifice so yeah it could have been that way but well I just so thought it was interesting. I have from her her ultimate Supreme Court like nomination acceptance. And yes. she says like, thank you to her mother, but she ends it with, I pray that I may be all that she would have been had she lived in an age where women could aspire and achieve and daughters are cherished as much as sons. Yeah. I think that's why it's a combination because it's yeah. like her mother couldn't even aspire to be these things because exactly. she knew her lot in life. Yeah. Right. Like it's not that, just that just she shitty. couldn't do it. She like never even thought about it really mm -hmm, exactly yeah so um ruth was always talking about how she loved doing things that boys did when she was growing up so one of the things she brings up in an interview later on in her life was she used to climb on top of garages and jump from roof to roof nope. which i thought was so badass that like, is imagine I don't want this, to. like a little yeah right i'm like imagine this like little brown-haired girl just like saying screw it climbing up on top of garages and just jumping from roof to roof like that's right. awesome um but even 
growing up, a lot of her peers described her as having this like quiet magnetism. And some of her friends even like thought of her as like a very deep thinker, even at a young age. So she had an older sister named Marilyn, uh, but Marilyn died from meningitis when she was six years old and Ruth was only about 14 months old. So Marilyn actually was the one that gave Ruth her nickname growing up as a kid. She used to be called Kiki and Marilyn called her Kiki because she always talked about how Ruth kicked as a baby and she kept calling her Kiki baby. So like that literally warmed my cold dead heart when I read that. And so like her mom started calling her Kiki and all of her friends started calling her Kiki and that was just like her nickname growing up. And I think it carried on to even after Marilyn passed away from um, from the meningitis. So the other thing that's interesting too is her name change. Well, didn't change, but she starts going by just Ruth when she starts in I think it's kindergarten or first grade because her mother sends her to school and remember her first name's actually Joan but like apparently there were like so many other girls that had the name Joan and I just like literally wrote I was like take moment to go on tangent about how as a teacher (laughs) you can actually see like name trends oh I mean take it from not the only Sarah Z in her grade yeah yes Mm -hmm. Exactly. Like there's a girl I, I always... still like hate follow on Facebook because she was also Sarah Z <laughs> and she was Sarah Z like alphabetically before me. So then I always had to be Sarah Z too. Ugh. The worst. Yeah. See, I grew up with no one ever saying my name properly. I still have people yeah. who pronounce it Cassie. But um when I was like really young, my mom told me the reason why she named me Casey because everybody and their mother was naming their kid Katie in 1991. Yeah. And she was just like, I didn't want to do what everyone else was doing. And I liked the name Casey. She's like, but I didn't like the EY. I thought that was for like Casey, a boy. So I went with Casey IE. And I was like, okay, I understand you're like playing into these like gender norms. Right. Because, like whatever. But also <laughs> everyone's called me Cassie for my entire life. Like I had a, I had a boss, one of my admins called me Cassie for like the first three years that I worked there. And then one day he was oh, like, God. is your name Casey? Like, have you been letting me call you the wrong name? And I was like, um, cause I was just starting out teaching. <laughs> I was like, maybe. And then he's like, please like don't like I'm so sorry that I messed that up for so long and I was like no that's true so I've been trying to be more of like an advocate for when people like I don't know mispronounce my name yeah I mean I think the first time we talked on the phone that was like the first thing I asked you was is it Casey or Cassie yeah and it's actually great when people are like oh Casey and I'm like oh my god you figured it out oh my god yeah like it's like this huge fucking puzzle (laughs) right but I just thought it was funny that her mother was like you know what we're just gonna start calling you Ruth because there were Mm -hmm. 17,000 Jones in her school and it's true as a teacher like every year I can see like oh so Isabella was a popular name back in 2005 like it's just yeah like the way that like Sophia it's probably like the Britneys and right Sarah and yeah I'm shouting at my friend Ashley because she always talks about how uh <laughs> she's got the most common name. <laughs> so Yeah. So it, she's no longer Joan. She's now Ruth. Okay. Um and so most accounts that I saw said that the Bader family was pretty tight knit. Um they were not overly religious in terms of their Judaism, but they attended the uh East Midwood Jewish Center and Ruth actually went to a Jewish summer camp in which she like later became a camp counselor, which I thought was really cool. 
And her mother, there really wasn't too much on her father, but her mother, Celia, was really active in Ruth's upbringing and education, not even just as like a mother, but Ruth had said in interviews later on in her life about how important it was, I guess, for her mother to get her through high school. And she basically said that, you know, her mother taught her these like two really core things. And the first was that she needed to be a lady. And the second was that she needed to be independent. And I thought the be a lady thing was interesting because to me, for Ruth to like later go on in life and talk about how her mother said that to her and then like what she would later do for women. Mm -hmm. I think what she then started to explain in the interview was like, and this is kind of interesting. We were talking about emotions before Ruth understood and interpreted the be a lady thing as not letting yourself be overcome with emotion and she meant it in the sense of like it's okay to be emotional and to have emotions but to be overcome with emotions that you can't act is useless okay does that make sense yeah because like hearing me say that i'm like does that make sense but like she said like she used anger as an example where she basically was like okay you know it's okay to be angry but like don't let your anger get the better of you that you can't make rational decisions or take action because of it like don't become so like swept up in your anger and your sadness and whatever that you are like now not doing anything yeah that makes sense yeah, which I actually think is fair. So I guess that's how Ruth interpreted the be a lady thing. And then okay. the second one was like be independent, meaning like, you know, she said in one of her interviews too, she was just such a like, I can't even explain how much I loved like listening to her speak. But she just was like, she's like, my mother would have been totally fine if I married Prince Charming. But she said to me that as long as I marry Prince Charming and I'm still able to take care of myself, that was the most important thing. Okay. So I thought that was really cute, too. And then she does marry Prince Charming, but I'm fine. I know. Oh, God, I can't. They were so- I can't wait to talk about him. I know. So Celia's ultimate hope for Ruth was that she'd be able to get a higher education than Celia was actually able to. And she hoped that Ruth would become a high school history teacher. Oh, Whoa! Because, you know, we're all thriving. (laughs) You're all thriving. Um, But also that was like (laughs) the job women got then. Yeah, exactly. And to be a history teacher, like you are talking about the past, you're educated, and you also can help maybe create change because you're sort of helping kids learn about the past. Right. So um, Ruth attended James Madison High School. And while she was there, her mother struggled with cancer. And so this is where it got super devastating. The day before... Ruth graduated her mother died and I was watching these interviews with some of her like childhood friends and like reading a little bit more about her and they said that her mother wanted nothing more than to make sure that her daughter graduated and I feel like she literally got that yeah she literally got her to that point and then that was it. Like she right. really like sometimes keep going. People like hold on for something certain. And right. So she was like, okay, you're graduating. And I had a lot of parallels with the way Celia died. And I feel like the way her daughter dies. Yeah. I agree. You know, there's this like sense of like holding on. Mm-hmm. So um, like I said, growing up, uh, her mother taught her self-sufficiency, independence, and the need for education. And so she continues her education by attending Cornell University. And if you've ever seen The Office, Cornell, ever heard of it? <laughs> I literally love that joke so much. I wrote that in. I was like, oh, my God. Good. Yes, it's Andy. Um, even though I really don't like The Office, it, it did not age well. But Fair. that's okay. Um, so she joined Alpha Epsilon Phi. And that's where she met Martin 
aka Marty Ginsburg, aka Prince Charming, aka the greatest man to have ever lived, probably. Basically. Pierre um, Curie who? Oh, I know. I got a lot of like, somebody texted me. I think my friend Lauren texted me. She's like, I love that you're literally like hot for Pierre Curie. <laughs> it's like, you know what? I'm not even going to be ashamed of it. He was super cute. And like, he was great. Again, we have like men who are backing up their women because they realize that their women are phenomenal. So Right. Also with Marty, yeah. it helps that in that one movie, Army Hammer plays him. And oh, that's right. So then you're yes. just like living your best life. But I have to say too, they were beautiful. Oh, yeah. Like, holy shit. I was like, these two look like 1950s models. Like, yeah, no, they were if gorgeous. If you pictured 1950s people, that's what they both looked like. It right. was astounding. It was not yeah. off base to have Army Hammer and Felicity Jones like play not them. at all. They looked similar enough that I was like, oh, yeah. actually, this works. Yep. Right, because really, you only ever see her as like this little old lady who's like yeah. Seven. That's how we've always. Right, her. even when she comes into the Supreme Court role, what she's like in her sixties. So. Yeah, she doesn't look like that. Like right, right. But I just thought it was really interesting um, because they were both incredibly good looking. So yeah. she was seventeen, he was eighteen, and they met while uh, they were at Cornell. And Cornell, I read, was actually a preferred school for daughters, and they talked a little bit about it in the interview too. So Ruth oh basically my. said that there was like a strict quota for women at Cornell, and that was that there right. was about four men for every woman. So she made this joke in an interview that was like, if a woman couldn't find a man there, she was hopeless. <laughs> And I thought that was like really funny and also like fair. incredibly depressing and right. totally fair. Yeah. Right. Like real but sad but fair. Right. Like the people who like go to college to get like the MRS degree back then. You know what I yes. mean? Yes. So yes. it was very much like that vibe. Um, mm -hmm. She also talked about in an interview how she never had a repeat date in her first semester at Cornell. And she was like, obviously, okay. like super popular. And she described Marty as being the boy, uh, quote, the first boy I ever knew who cared that I had a brain. Aww. Which I thought was beautiful and really also sad. <laughs> Most yep. of this is both beautiful and sad. Right. So um, a lot of times she felt that the women at Cornell had to suppress how intelligent and smart they were because of the fact that it was like not really attractive to be smarter or as yeah. smart as the boy you were dating or whatever. Um, but Marty was so comfortable with himself and she said that he was never threatened by her. And in fact, he loved how shy and quiet and very soft voice just like you pretty much never knew that Ruth was really in the room but mm -hmm. she always knew what was going on and Ruth described Marty as being like gregarious and outgoing and he was the life of the party and he was hilarious and just like everybody knew when Martin Ginsburg was in the room Yeah, and the two were just complete opposites but Ruth says in another interview uh, that meeting Marty was the most fortunate thing that ever happened to me Cute. and I think that's really beautiful too so she graduates from Cornell with a Bachelor of Arts degree in government on June 23rd, 1954. Um, or it might be May because it was weird because when I was doing research on when she and Martin got married, mm -hmm. there was like one date, which was the same date as her graduation. So I couldn't actually find something on it. But I mean, I guess typical college graduations, what, like May? Yeah. Mine was in May. Yeah, I think mine was too. So... Then she probably got married June 23rd and graduated like a month before that. Um, but the couple moved to Oklahoma. Yeah, she right did. After Their anniversary was June 23rd. Okay, got so, it. So then yeah. I guess she probably graduated like May 23rd, like pretty much right before that. Yeah. Um, and the couple moved to Oklahoma because Marty was drafted into the military. And while there, Ruth worked for the Social Security Administration 
And then she was demoted when they found out she was pregnant. So, <laughs> yeah, cool, cool, cool. that's fun. That's fun. Um, so she became pregnant with her daughter, Jean, and Jean was born the following year in 1955. <clears throat> Sorry, like choking. Um, so after his time in the military, um, Marty decided to move back kind of east. And so while there, Ruth decided to enroll at Harvard Law School. And this was kind of interesting, too, because... What, like it's hard? I just, like... <laughs> Can I just tell you, every time I read Harvard Law, I was like, <laughs> oh my God, I'm having some serious like Reese Witherspoon, oh, yeah. Legally Blonde vibes. What, like the card? Yes, literally, like the whole time. Um, Just so, so good. And I even thought about too how like that movie wouldn't have been possible without the shit that I was reading about. You know right. what I mean? <laughs> what, like it's hard? Like so cool. Oh, classic. Um. But I thought it was interesting because, like, her family was just sort of like, really? You sure you want to do this? And she was like, yeah, I really would like to be a lawyer. And they kind of were all like, well, you know what? Go for it. And yeah, if you can't sure, do it, then honey. you can't do it. Yeah. And it was kind of, like, supportive, but also, like, mildly doubtful. But at the same time, they were kind of just like, look, you do what you want to do. If this is what you want to do, then go for it. Figure it out. So that's what she did. She uh, joined the Harvard Law School class. Uh, I think it would be. So she joined in fall 56. So I don't know. Is it four years 60? law school or two? Oh, yeah. 60. No. I don't know anything about this like same. at all. Me either. Um, but she was one of only nine women in the class of 500 men. So something else interesting, too. She was talking with her granddaughter in one of the interviews that I watched and her granddaughter also graduated from Harvard Law. And in the 200th year of Harvard, it was the first time that the class was 50-50 men and women. 200 years. Wow. Yeah. So that's all kinds of fucked up. So basically, 2% of Harvard Law at the time was made up of women. And the other women that Ruth worked with there, including herself, talked a lot about how they felt like they were always constantly on display. And there was this like immense pressure that if they failed, they failed for all women and they were always being watched. And so like an example is like the Harvard Law School used, I don't know if they still do, but use the Socratic method of teaching, which is basically you ask a question and then someone answers and then you discuss from there. So mm -hmm. women were either never really called on or they were called on for really challenging questions. And, you know, Ruth and her classmates always said that it was like almost unbearable to have to answer because you were just so worried about getting it wrong. And then everybody being like, well, what is she doing here? Yeah. Um, and even in the the dinner with the dean, you know, Ruth talks about how she was told to stand up with the other nine women and basically justify why she had taken a seat at Harvard oh, yes. from a man, which is like this is cool. like i'm sweating because of the amount of the feminine rage that i have that I'm yeah experiencing. i hate this man yeah so she makes harvard law review in her second year so she was the top 25 students of like 450 or five or sorry 540 or 550 at the time this was so incredible her yeah. daughter was 14 months old when she went to harvard she okay. basically would go to we should go to school study at 4 p.m., the babysitter left, and then it was time to spend the rest of the afternoon with her daughter. And Ruth later goes on to say in interviews that, like, the reason why she feels like she was able to survive Harvard was literally because she had a child. She was like, I had other things to live for, yeah. and I had other things to occupy my time, which I thought was really, really incredible. Mm-hmm. 
because I can't imagine being just a working oh, I first of all, I can't imagine being a working parent. Second of all, I can't imagine being a working mother in the 50s yeah and also going to law school where like everyone's expecting you to fail and are just basically constantly shitting on you like, right oh, that's incredible so um at the same time marty was in his third year of law school and he gets diagnosed with cancer and so he would actually have to go for treatments pretty much like midnight 1 a.m and they would just be basically like radiation yeah. and he would get really sick from them so ruth then took on the role of basically caring for him too so not just as a caretaker for his daughter and for him but also like she would not necessarily go to class for him but she'd have his classmates take notes and then she'd type up those notes for marty and then give them to him so that he could read like if he couldn't attend class because he was feeling too sick like good for him that he like i'm not good for i don't mean that in a way that like that's what people should do but just like he also was like, no, I'm not going to take the semester off. That's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like these no, no, people, it's just cancer. Like, yeah, these people, both of them are insane and I like it. Yeah. It's, I didn't even think, honestly, I didn't even think of it like that, but you're absolutely right. That's incredible. Um. So yeah, I mean, she just, or she basically like rallied everybody up and was like, Marty needs help. So this is what we're doing. And people were like, okay. okay. Yeah, we can yes, do ma'am. That. Yeah. So she'd get like maybe two hours of sleep and it's interesting because like her, her children always say that. They could remember their mother having all of her work spread out on the dining room table and she'd be up till three, four, five in the morning just yeah. working and working. And they said that she had a box of prunes in one hand <laughs> and like a legal document in the other and she'd sleep the entire weekend. Like, but that was just like, I mean, she would have to physically be brought home by her husband sometimes and they loved her for it. You know, there was no sense of like animosity it was just like what she did so i thought that was really powerful yeah but eventually marty takes a job in new york city and after a few years like at harvard ruth transfers to columbia to finish up her degree and she also makes the columbia law review which makes her the first woman to be on both the harvard one and the columbia one which is pretty cool so she graduates uh from columbia law school in 1959 and she ties for being the first in her class yes she does she just continues to be badass but because it's 1959, nobody wants to hire her because she's a woman. Mm-hmm. So this is where my feminine rage continues to just grow. Yep. So her first, I mean, I'm sure there were plenty of other job applications, but the first one I noticed that stuck out to be one of the bigger ones was she actually applied for a clerkship under one of the Supreme Court justices, Felix Frankfurter. Ew, he, he sounds <laughs> I had bad. to put his name. Like, what a terrible name. Yeah, like who Supreme Court Justice Felix Frankfurter. Like Felix Frankfurter. Justice Frankfurter. No. How do you take that seriously? Did they have hot dogs back then? They had to have hot dogs. I'd literally think Frankfurter like a hot dog. I'm sure they did. Like unless he was like the founder of the hot dog. (laughs) But isn't right? I guess like Frankfurt is a place in Germany, right? So maybe it's one of those weird like Ellis Island. We don't know what to call you. So you're just like from Frankfurt. You're a Frankfurter. Yeah, that's actually very true. Because they they changed my great grandparents name. It was Orso, but they changed it to Orsi. Yeah, ours was like Zoltarov and they changed it to Zoloth. Yeah. They're like, let's make you sound more American. Yeah, Zoltarov was like too much for them. But either way, this guy's name was Felix, so I mean, yeah, he's already that's not my off cat, to a great one of my start. cat's names. <laughs> that's what I was thinking of, like yeah. a, like a cat. I yeah. was actually thinking of a giant cat in a judge's robe. Yes, 
smoking that, a cigar. That I'm okay with. Um, Donald Trump, if you would <laughs> like to appoint a cat, I will vote for that. <laughs> this is really the only thing I could possibly approve would be a yes, cat. Yes, that might get me back, not back, but that might get me just a little bit. <laughs> I was going to say, get you back? Not back. When were you ever there? No, get me <laughs> vaguely on board for that one thing and like not even really not for real just for like a second (laughs) right exactly so she was denied for the clerkship because she was a woman and even though she had a really strong recommendation from her former professor and the eventual dean of harvard law and a lot of her professors actually found the same situation to be true so they would write these like really astounding recommendations and then they basically get like totally ignored or shit on Because the people Mm. that she was looking to work for just did not want to hire a woman. So eventually, though, uh, Professor Gunther at Columbia University threatened to never recommend another Columbia law student to a judge (laughs) if he didn't accept her. Okay. Which is, like, crazy badass. I mean, it's also really messed up that, like, it had to get to the point of, like, I will never recommend another law student. But, like... Okay. But fine, you know, and I believe that that's probably would have that probably would have been the case because she yeah. graduated literally top of her class. So this is um, under Judge Palmieri and Judge Palmieri hired her. And so she started her career working um, under him in like a clerkship. So I thought this was really cool. She kind of does this combination of working and academia. So she doesn't just, you know, work as a lawyer or a clerk. She also does like research and development which i thought was interesting so between the years 1961 and 1963 she was also a research associate and eventually the associate director of columbia law school's project on international procedure and law and so she lives in sweden for a little while which i thought was really cool Hmm. and she learns how to speak and write in swedish and because she spends this, like a good amount of time in Sweden, she starts to see like a lot of the changes that Sweden starts to take over with including women in their workforce and how they treat women. So like one example she gives is like I think 20 to 25 percent of the law students in Sweden were actually women as opposed to like the 2 percent back in the United States. And then she also said that she observed a judge that was eight months pregnant and still working. Nice. Like, which is amazing in and of itself. But yeah. For the time was like, holy shit, that's really cool. Right. Yeah. For um, like, that was, I'm sure, something they'd never seen. Right. Exactly. Especially her. She's like, oh my God, <laughs> I was like one month pregnant and I got fired from my job mm-hmm. working social security. I wasn't like a judge. I literally was just like a regular admin. But yeah. So what's really cool, too, and I did not know this, and I kind of, like, squeed a little bit when uh, it came on in the interview, and then I kind of did more research on it. She was actually a professor of law at Rutgers University, which is really close to me, Yeah, uh, which is really sweet. And she basically got the job and then was immediately told that she would be paid less than her male counterparts because she had a husband who had a good job. (laughs) You don't really need the money. This is, like pocket change yeah so god it's like just gonna get worse um Mm -hmm. so at that time she was one of like i think they said maybe 20 like 20 to zero female law professors in the entire country great yeah so while she's at Rutgers, uh she's there i think from 63 to 72 and she earns tenure in 1969 and she teaches civil procedure and eventually she talks about how she was asked to create like a 
women in law or like a gender and law class because a lot of the students that they were slowly accepting more and more women were like interested in how there was this I don't know if the students necessarily were like what are the gender inequalities in like our legal system but it was kind of just also like how to work with that knowing full well that you might not get a job because you're a woman. Right. Uh, and then she co-founded the Women's Rights Law Reporter in 1970, which was the first legal journal to exclusively focus on women's rights. And after she leaves Rutgers, she teaches at Columbia for a few years and she becomes the first woman to be tenured on their faculty. And she co-authors the first law school casebook on sex discrimination. And then in 1972, she starts the women's rights project at the american civil liberties union or the aclu yeah. and basically within a year she's become the general counsel for the entire project so from what i understand of this project they basically were like an organization that took on specific cases where there was specific discrimination because of like gender inequality essentially Mm -hmm. so like i'll talk about a few of the cases because there's like like my next fact is in the two years that she started there there were over 300 gender discrimination cases literally 300 and they didn't necessarily always make it to the supreme court but she actually did meet with the supreme court um she argued six cases before them and she won five of those six cases which is really cool yeah Not bad. So this is kind of where a lot of her, I mean, I guess it's kind of like her white feminism comes into play Mm -hmm. because there is this sense of picking and choosing what the best cases were for her to argue. Yeah. So from what I understood, and this is what a lot of like the historians that I read a little bit about, like what they wrote or just like almost like legal scholars, they basically said that Ruth had this gradual and very specific strategy in how she was trying to like basically chip away at gender inequality. Right. So she basically would say she's like not going to just like go in full force and be like, you know, burning bras and like (laughs) women should be president because she realized that like while these aren't extreme notions, they are extreme for that time and they are extreme for the people who can create change. Exactly. Yeah. So she really was like really very picky in what cases she chose and she chose the plaintiffs that she represented very strategically even so much as like taking on male clients quote unquote and i guess like plaintiffs is probably a better because i don't actually know if they like paid for her services i'm not yeah, really sure I how that works probably not with the aclu but i don't know that's what i'm assuming exactly because i think it's a little bit more like pro bono mm-hmm. because the idea is like continued change and not right. just like you know we're winning cases and you're bringing home a million dollar settlement kind of thing yeah um so she chose these plaintiffs strategically um including like male plaintiffs like i said in order to like prove that sex discrimination was harmful to both men and women so it wasn't just like women who were being shit on and didn't benefit from it like men struggled with it too yeah so it's frustrating too because like it's sort of i mean it's not necessarily backwards is not the right word but it's just annoying that like the only way that these like old saggy white dudes could even get <laughs> sorry uh-huh. like the no whole, you're correct the only word i could think of while i was watching and listening to these trials or whatever was just saggy like <laughs> no i love it it was just like the one word i was just like Bleh. and i hate that word because it's one of those words that like sounds like what it is yeah is that like uh, it's like onomatopoeia, like a door slams or something? Yeah, but it's not actually onomatopoeia. Because no, but it, it's 
it's like moist. It sounds like it feels. Oh, yes. Oh, my God. <laughs> that's, that's exactly what it is. Okay, so these saggy old white dudes were yep. basically, like, not inclined to really listen to her unless they felt like men were also being, you know, hurt right. by this. So I literally wrote, because she knew that if men were being hurt, well, then that's a really huge fucking problem. And then I roll because... Basically, not the men. I didn't think my eyes could roll any further back into my head than they did throughout the entire time researching this shit. So she specifically targeted laws that reinforced this idea that women were dependent upon men, even though they appeared to, on the surface, support women and be like pro-woman in actuality she basically tried to like show that it was more about women being like treated like second class citizens yeah women being treated as like inferior or less capable or dependent or whatever so um i thought that was interesting too and then the other thing that i read was that she was encouraged to stop using the word sex discrimination she was actually told to use the word gender because the word sex was too distracting for the all male oh. judges, which I okay. think is very interesting because yeah. it, it, it's really like it makes me think about like gender discrimination and like sex discrimination. Do you know what I mean? Like how yeah. today we understand that gender is like a social construct and it's not real, but like sex is yeah. But like she couldn't use that word because saying sex to a fucking table of nine grown ass saggy white men was too distracting. Right. Well, and we also like they're not interchangeable today. People right. treat them differently. But then it was just like, just use this word instead. But what's interesting is and it's kind of frustrating, too, because like I think if she had just been allowed to keep using the word sex. Yeah. That would have been better. Yeah. Like, does does that make sense? I Yeah, I agree. I mean, also, it's because I, that you like can't hear the word sex. You're on the Supreme Court. Please get it together. Right. Like what? <laughs> that's, ex- that's exactly it. I was like, how you're you're collectively together. You're like a thousand years yeah. fucking old. Like maybe that should be one of the tests is like, I'm going to stand in front of you and I'm going to say not like fun words, just like penis sex. And if you laugh, yes. you can't be on the court. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah, that's. 100%. And 100%. I would laugh, but I also shouldn't be on the Supreme Court. Right. Oh, I couldn't. I First of all, the fact that you have to be in any way patient. Like, yeah. people will be like, wow, you must be so patient for, like, being a teacher. But, like, actually, I basically just have to swallow all of my impatience and right. try not to punch walls and then just, like, fine. go home and take it out on my family, you know? <laughs> Obviously. Like any healthy person. Right. It's so bad. So I can't imagine having to sit there and basically be like, or argued with or like have to listen to th- something that you might so vehemently disagree with but right you'll talk more about her and her supreme court stuff because she yes. did some great stuff and she did some not great stuff too so right again she was a fallible human being so um so like i said she talked about how being a woman was an impediment in a lot of jobs and women were kind of feeling that everywhere so her work with the aclu was very much about trying to get people to understand where women were treated as inferior because right. like some of the things that i saw and this is when I texted you saying I'm it says something like I'm flowing with feminine rage yes <laughs> which is like like I was actually <laughs> Eric came downstairs and I think he sat next to me at the worst possible time because I'm just sitting there typing yes. up what they're saying and they're talking about and showing laws like employers could legally fire a woman for being pregnant banks could or like could not have a woman like get credit unless she had a husband to co-sign for her. There were 12 states at the time that husbands could not be prosecuted for raping their wives. Like, 
Oh, cool. So, yeah. So Eric sat so down. He at, sat next to you and you were like, go away. I was like shaking. I was like, are you kidding me right now? And he's like, I came here to bedtime. Right. He's you know, like, this is your he's fault, like, Eric. Is- yes. <laughs> like way to go but yeah no that's literally what happened I just was like so mad and he's like I he's like I know this is ridiculous like I can't even believe that this was ever a thing and I was like this is disgusting isn't this disgusting <laughs> and he's like what are what are you doing I'm like I'm working on show notes Eric he's like oh, okay you know what okay. I'm I think I'm gonna yeah. go work out <laughs> I'm good thanks <laughs> like, though. good idea good idea um so yeah so she basically just used the skills that she had and put them to work in really breaking it down bit by bit so a couple of the cases that were interesting that they talked about was something called Frontier uh, Frontierio versus is Richardson. So um, there was a woman who was a second lieutenant in the Air Force and um, she basically had just graduated college. She had this new job and she joined the army because she needed a job and they were allowing women into the Air Force. She had just gotten married and she was working alongside all of these other men who basically had the same job as her. And it became pretty clear pretty quickly that all of them were getting paid a housing stipend, but she didn't. And so she goes and was like, oh, somebody must have screwed up an admin. Like they forgot to give me a housing stipend. So she goes to the administrative offices and she's like, hey, so yeah, like looks like y'all forgot to give me a housing stipend, which I'm entitled to because every other person has one. Right. Like it was basically you would get one if you were married. So all of the men in her unit had that had wives were getting like stipends for a house and they literally told her no you don't get one you're lucky that we even let you in here in the first place and she was like okay so she just kind of kept going like higher and higher up and she literally just kept getting told the same thing and so she went to speak with what i think it was like a family friend or like a lawyer and the lawyer basically was like no this isn't like a clerical error like you straight up need to either pursue a lawsuit to get the money or you need to drop it and so the um, ACLU like women's project heard about this and they took her on basically as a plaintiff. And one of the things that the woman was saying was like, there was this like very strong feeling of like women. No, she said it like nice girls don't speak up and nice okay. girls don't make demands. And so there was this very big kind of continuation of that understanding of how Ruth is going to kind of continue and chip away at this like battle for like gender equality. Mm-hmm. Um, so they lose in district court in Alabama and then it gets bumped up to the Supreme Court. And basically Ruth splits the time with Richardson's lawyer and herself and basically says like I want to be able to talk to the court and I want to be able to explain exactly what it's like to be a second class citizen in the United States of America and so she talks in her interview about how she um, didn't eat lunch that day because she was the first to speak afterwards she's like I didn't dare eat and I was like girlfriend I hear you I probably would have vomited everywhere right which was really really sweet Um, and she basically said that quote I have a captive audience who didn't think there was anything about gender who, di- who didn't think there was anything wrong or didn't know there was anything about gender-based discrimination. So she talks about uh, inferiority. She assumes or she talks about how all women are assumed um, to be preoccupied with home and children and like laws were designed to keep women in their place and they were inferior to men in society. 
And she goes on to say, like, they were silent the entire time. And she didn't know, quote, are they just indulging me and not listening? Or am I telling them something they haven't heard before and are paying attention? And so in this in this argument in front of the Supreme Court, she quotes Sarah Grimke, who said, no, um, I ask no favor for our sex. Um, we only ask that our male counterparts take their feet off our necks. Or I, I actually should have looked up the real quote, and I, I th- kind of hate myself that I, I didn't think it's like it. we only ask that our male brethren take their boots off our neck or something. Yes. Yep. But mm-hmm. I didn't realize. I always see that quoted as an RBG Her. quote. Yeah. Me too. And that's why I put that in because she actually quotes it because uh, Sarah Grimke was a huge feminist and abolitionist in the eighteen. 18- hundreds like late 1800s and so she was a big part of the women's suffrage movement too i think at least the earlier stages of it because i don't actually know when she died i probably actually we should probably do an episode on her too she sounds pretty yeah. cool so uh ginsburg had this idea or ruth i don't know why i keep calling her the first name it's- i gotta be honest i tell my students all the time unless you know these people personally don't fucking call them by their first name but i couldn't help it see it's funny i call everybody by their first name yeah um i don't know like, I, I have ha- kids that are that like write papers about like martin luther like the protestant reform- yeah. reformer and they're like martin says i'm like you didn't well, fucking know yeah him. in a paper i feel like you say the last name i also just feel like because her last name was ginsburg that's like her husband's last name so i just didn't feel True. as inclined so i don't know and then rbg there's some problems with like notorious rbg so i was just like i'm gonna call her ruth and we're just gonna keep it yeah so she basically believed that sex discrimination should be treated like race discrimination um And she realized that it was too soon to take for like the Supreme Court to take like this overarching like action, like we said before. Mm -hmm. So she believed that real change, enduring change happens one step at a time, quote. Um, Another big case was the Weinberger versus Weisenfeld, which is another one where she gets most of her notoriety for yeah um weisenfeld was a man whose wife had died from amniotic embolism pretty much like right after giving birth which Mm -hmm. is like heartbreaking and she had a totally normal pregnancy the entire time and then she died like four hours after giving birth to their son jason and so he determined that he was going to have to be a caregiving parent and so he went to go to the social security office to get benefits for the sole surviving parent and the social security office was like no sorry this is like a mother thing only and he was like, what, what the right. fuck? Like, I'm a, I'm still a single parent. I'm widowed. Yeah. A widowered. I don't know if that's the right word. Um, so he actually, in 1975, when they went to the Supreme Court about it, he sat next to her at the table. Mm-hmm. And she said that that made a huge difference for the judges because here was like a perfect example of like your everyday white man who was oh, not benefiting right who was not benefiting from a system that was obviously designed to benefit him but was harming women but in some cases actually didn't help anybody and so this was like the whole point that she was trying to make is that like you know sex discrimination you know discrimination based on that hurts everybody that's involved right uh she also described herself as being like a kindergarten teacher <laughs> because she never <laughs> spoke in anger she was always very much like calm and rational and like captivating because even though she was clearly super like pissed she just basically had to like she's like i had to teach them i had to be patient and like walk them through the steps of what we're talking about and And, like assume they had never learned it before because i feel like that's with kindergarten it's the first time they're learning it Mm -hmm. and you know what i kept thinking too like 
it's frustrating for me, like hearing about her doing this. But then I think about all of like the, you know, black indigenous people of color who have had to like mm-hmm. sit on this shit for years and like gently teach white people why things right. are wrong. And I'm like, damn, like, you know, we like everybody gets their backs up about it. But like when it comes down to it, like this is the same thing. Like this is yeah. like I get frustrated at her having to like spoon feed saggy white men all the shit. And like in reality, like white people are still doing this. They're still demanding like knowledge and learning from people of color. And that's just not acceptable. Yeah. Especially with the shit that's like available. So a lot of times she got snarky comments too. In one case, after one of her oral arguments, she is asked uh, by Justice Rehnquist, quote, so you won't settle for putting Susan B. Anthony on the new dollar then as like a joke. And Ruth just fucking ignored him. (laughs) Like, she's like, we actually wanted, I actually wanted to say we won't settle for tokens, which I thought was also super relevant today. Yeah. um, but yeah, so but she's like, I also just it's fun because there's actually still no women on money. So like his little joke about a quick cop out also never happened. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. Um, so in 1978, she starts to get more notoriety in terms of joining the U.S. Court of Appeals. And so in 78, Congress passed the Omnibus Judgeship Act, which sounds really interesting. But actually, it's just like increasing the number of federal judges by 117 in district courts and 35 got added to circuit groups. And this was a big part of Jimmy Carter's presidency. So I didn't really know this about him either because, I don't know, I feel like he kind of becomes sort of like a caricature of himself. Um, But basically, he says in one of his speeches, like, he wants more people in the government that don't look like him. And he like looks around one day and he's like, mm, there's a lot of old white dudes here and we're not a bunch of old white dudes in this country. So he tried to advocate for more um, minority groups and women to be filling these government positions that, you know, old white men had held for a long what, time. What a nice moment to remind ourselves that the Constitution um, in no places dictates the number of judges on any, any federal bench and that sometimes mm-hmm. you add more. Sometimes you add more, especially as your country grows uh-huh. and the amount of diversity in your country grows. And the Constitution was written literally by yep. wealthy white slave owners. Right. So, like, we're not those people anymore. So to just only read the Constitution word for word is like reading the yeah. Bible word for word. Right. So, so just a is- nice time to remember that adding judges to the court is OK. Thank you. Yeah. There's no <laughs> rule that's like we can only have nine. Like, <sighs> So anyway, so anyway, in 1980, um, she basically gets appointed into the U.S. Court of Appeals. And a lot of her people like that worked with her described her as being confident in herself, even when she was just starting out. And there was this kind of like long running joke between Marty and Ruth and their friends. And Marty always said like, oh, I moved to Washington because my wife got a good job. And like that was like a big deal, even in, you know, 1980 for to like uproot his life to go follow his wife's dream. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And there was just like a lot of alternating in the partnership. And this is kind of where I'm going to start to trail off and like let you take over once you look at like 1993 and like her experiences with that. But overall, like their working relationship was incredible in terms of like being a couple and a partnership and you know i like that we talked about the curies a couple weeks ago and they were like actually working partners but Mm -hmm. but marty and ruth were just like you know marty took over when ruth needed him to and ruth knew when to take over when marty needed her him to her to you know like yeah so i thought it was really cool that you know they her kids described her as always helping with homework she always had a red pen in her hand ready to work she always told him to work (laughs) hard and don't disappoint us as parents but like you do what you need to do if Ruth Bader Um, Ginsburg ever looked at me and said don't disappoint me Mm -hmm. I would crumble 
100%. I'd be like, Ruth, I've already disappointed you. Yeah, I've disappointed you, know? you guys <laughs> looking at you. I've got to go. Yes. Yeah. And it's interesting because, like, she did have this, like, overwhelming ability to command a room. Yeah. And she was so... Teeny. Yeah, she was tiny and she was, like, quiet and, like... But she just had this really commanding air about her. And the um, the, her time on the, you know, Court of Appeals basically helped her gain a little bit more um i wouldn't say national notoriety i guess it kind of did that's not really going to come until she's actually a member of the supreme court but she was always known to be a cautious you know judge she tended to be more moderate and you know she spent her time for i think what 13 years of it just kind of taking it all in but also working really hard to make sure that like the like the judgments that she made were fair yeah and again some of it's going to be a little bit problematic not necessarily on her time on the appeals but just like you know what she deems as fair but yeah i mean that's that's her life from pretty much 1933 to 1993 yeah and so i will take over at 1993 so bill clinton is the president and there is a vacancy on the supreme court so he (laughs) um he nominates your last small laugh was sad (laughs) it sounded like you were about to start crying i basically was and so rbg is not actually even close to Clinton's first choice for the Supreme Court seat. He first immediately goes to Mario Cuomo. So father of Andrew and Chris Cuomo. Yes. Um, and he's he goes to Mario Cuomo, who initially is like, yeah, cool. And then later sends Bill Clinton a fax saying that he feels that his obligation to the people of the state of New York is more important than... Governor, right at this time yes i believe so yeah um and that he feels like he needs to stay in new york and like thanks but no thanks so after cuomo turns him down clinton goes through like a really long list of people and he has a couple points where he tries to do something that they keep calling you know sexy in like the marketing term way like something mm-hmm. sexy like should he he considers getting like political philosophers instead of practicing lawyers there's a time when he considers appointing Hillary until someone's like, that's not going to look so good. That's um, a terrible idea. Right. Bill. <laughs> and it's like, this is not when everyone hates Hillary yet. Like, it's not that Hillary's a bad choice. You just can't appoint your wife to the Supreme Court. Yeah, that's like, like literally. I mean, I, is it nepotism? I think so. Or is that like, yeah, I think it's that's just appointing family. I don't think it has to be like your child. Yeah. So they're like, no, no. So <laughs> you imagine what a garbage idea that would be. <laughs> right. So he starts going through a list of a bunch of other dudes. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and at some point, it's thought that he's going to choose Stephen Breyer. And when that rumor is going around, Cuomo actually has Andrew Cuomo, his son, call him back and set up a meeting. And Cuomo is basically like, if you appoint Breyer, you've appointed a white man. And when you have your next vacancy, you won't be able to appoint another white man. So this is my only choice. So instead of Breyer, pick me. Like, he basically panics and is like, shit, I can't do it next time if it's a white guy. And so he's like, pick me, pick me. But Clinton decides, and this feels so, like, gross, and I don't know. It does, but it doesn't. They describe it as he goes through, right, He considers a list of quote-unquote firsts. So he considers a man named David 
to tell, um, who is a blind man and would be the first blind justice. He considers it. Dis- oh, that's yes. a terrible joke. Oh my yeah. god. <laughs> yeah. This justice is blind. Yeah. Like, what a ter- Clinton, what drugs were you on, dude? Oh, Sorry, and then he I'm considers a man named um marijuana is the answer, but he didn't inhale. Um <laughs> Very cool, timely jokes for all you kids out there. <laughs> Google it if you don't know what the hell that means. It's fine. <laughs> um, he considers a man named Jose Cabranes, who is would be the first Hispanic justice at the time. Mm-hmm. And then also considers Judge Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who would be the first female justice since 1969, since Abe Fortas had left. Mm-hmm. Um, and also be the first woman to be appointed by a Democrat. So she's not the first woman overall. Sandra Day O'Connor is already on the court. Right. Um, she's not the first Jewish person, but she would be the first Jewish woman, um, the first woman appointed by a Democrat, all that. Yeah, because O'Connor was Republican, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, and then what's interesting is this like bowled me over. So it talks about all these people that kind of recommended her to Clinton. Right. And we're like, no, she's really good. You should pick her. Everyone will like confirm her, blah, blah, blah. And one is Janet Reno. The other one is Orrin Hatch. Yeah. Like crazy ass Republican Orrin Hatch from Utah is the yeah, one who's like, yeah, Ruth Bader he, Ginsburg. That sounds good. He actually, he was in that, um, the RBG documentary that I was watching. Yeah. He loved her. I know. He's like, I didn't agree with most of her shit, but she was brilliant. Right. And she like kind of made me agree with her. <laughs> yeah. Like, That's actually really cool. Right. And it was at the time she was viewed very much as a moderate and like a consensus building choice. Mm-hmm. Um, so whereas yeah. now we think of her as very far left and we'll get into some of that um she at the time was like oh yeah that's a very like middle road choice um and there was a couple reasons that i i found some like old articles from the 90s and there was things that cited her as being known to be conservative on crime um Mm. and also i'll get into this deeper because i think it's really interesting but her rationale for abortion rights was always slightly different than like the mainstream and kind of took a different approach and so some people preferred her for that do you know how yes do you get into that i'll get into it so i have basically a list of like issues and how she ruled on different issues and i'll talk about that got it okay cool i didn't want to like ask yeah no you're good no okay um there was a quote from around that time that says some have criticized judge ginsburg for being more interested in the fine print rather than the big picture and for being a legal technician rather than an interpretive philosopher criticisms that judge ginsburg should wear as a badge of honor so basically people were like she's too technical all she wants to do is like determine the law and everyone was like yeah that's good that's Isn't like probably the job exactly oh, um oh she then- wants to do her job well oh no Got it. <laughs> Um, she was also described as a rational minimalist who wants to cautiously build on precedent. So that's kind mm-hmm. of what you were saying before is she never wanted to do big sweeping things. She wanted to like make small changes in the law to create a foundation. Yeah, she like notoriously would say things like um, that she didn't believe in like large scale revolution. She yes. always thought that like change happened gradually over time and it had to happen in smaller steps, which yeah. I don't disagree with, but I don't like fully agree with. I feel like so. you need both both yeah right like one doesn't work without the other is sort of how i feel exactly Mm -hmm. um she got rated by the like bar association as well qualified which is the highest rating they'll give for supreme court nominees so that seems awfully lame i know right you're well qualified Ooh, boy um (laughs) but it is the highest you can get so good for her and then so i have a couple quotes from her nomination speech i read the one about her mom earlier but i have two other ones 
So she said, the announcement the president just made is significant, I believe, because it contributes to the end of the days when women, at least half the talent pool in our society, appear in high places only as one-time performers. And so that sort of, they had one woman on the Supreme Court, but putting a second one on felt like they were more committed to it. Like, (laughs) right? Like, okay, well, you put one on, that's a token, whatever. But like, now there's two. Oh, boy. Look at us. We I are know. thriving as a yeah. first world country. Right. And then the other kind of same vein is my daughter Jane reminded me a few hours ago in a good luck call from Australia of a sign of the change we have had the good fortune to experience. In her high school yearbook on her graduation in 1973, the listing for Jane Ginsburg under ambition was to see her mother appointed to the Supreme Court. The next line read, if necessary, Jane will appoint her. Jane is so pleased, Mr. President, that you did it instead. So, like, that's cute, but then it's also like, oh, look, a man did it. How nice. How nice of him. Um, Where would we be without men, Sarah? Oh, nowhere. I can tell you exactly where we wouldn't fucking be, which is right (laughs) where we are right now. Correct. My dad is probably listening to this and dad, I know you're so mad that I'm saying these things publicly, but this is trash. Uh. If it makes you feel better, Casey's dad, she's right. Uh. (laughs) Hi. And that doesn't negate all the things that you did for me and all the hard work that you put into it. And like, but damn, like, honestly, I'm thinking about this and like, I don't even know how we could make this an episode, but I straight up just want to do the history of why women have been shit on since like the beginning of time. That's like a 30 like, hour podcast. I know. Maybe we need to just start a second podcast then because <laughs> I do not understand how this is wh- like, and then you have women who like feed into it and who oh, buy yeah. into it. Like, what's her face right now? Mm-hmm. That's like the new replacement. Barrett. Yes. Like. What? You would not be where you are had someone not done the things that you're trying to take away. Like, we literally just talked about this. Yeah. Stu- it, <sighs> stupid. Okay, I'm so sorry. No, I, just, I love I, it. You're I'm right, and I love it. I'm the sound waves on here, and I just went <laughs> fucking berserk. So it's great. I'm like, um, I'm gonna mute myself. Go on, girl. No, you're good. Um, so her hearings go pretty well for the most part. One of the things she does get criticism for, and I did not know this, is that until this point, she had never employed an African-American in like any position in her court. So yep. as a law clerk, an intern, anything. Um, and she kind of gave an answer when asked about that that was weird. That was basically like, well, once you put me on the Supreme Court, Black people will like me more. Which I, I'm unclear yeah. on what her reasoning there was. Yeah. Um, But she basically said, like, my appeal will improve. I I got the feeling that she was, I mean, she definitely was a white feminist. I wouldn't say that she was as white feminist as white feminists are today. But, like, I would say she was kind of like, we'll get there first and then we'll help you. Yeah. It was like that kind of vibe. And it gets into this on some of the issues. She had, like, tunnel vision sometimes. And so I think she very much believed in like racial equality and all that but was just so focused on gender equality that she didn't like step out of that to see the interactions or anything like that she didn't realize the intersectionality of it or she did and she was just like i don't give a shit this is what i'm trying to do right like she was just this is my thing someone else will do that is sort of how i think she was a human being and again that's not justifying all the kind of shitty things that she says or does or doesn't do but like right it doesn't mean she's like bad it doesn't mean she's perfect Right, exactly. I think the problem is when people put her 
or have put her on this pedestal for the last 10 to 15 years of her life. And right. Like, you and kind she of just also does the fact that there was other shit she didn't do. Yeah. And she also does like improve and learn a lot over time that you see. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'll talk about like some of the things she said she regrets. Right. Uh, um, but during the hearing. So one of the other things is she discusses a lot about gender equality and privacy law and these different things where she had already written decisions. So they were part of the public record. But she actually refused to comment on certain issues that she saw herself as probably having to write a decision on on the Supreme Court. Um, so like the death penalty was one example. She had never written a decision about that and she was, wasn't was willing to discuss it as part of the hearings because to her then it made it a, a political thing, right? Which way would you vote? Right. Oh, um, okay. And Interesting. they actually later called that the Ginsburg precedent. So um, other other justices, I believe John Roberts, when he was later at his nomination hearings, they called it the Ginsburg precedent when he didn't answer certain questions. And she said, like, he's absolutely right to do that. So it was sort of this her thing of like, I'm not going to tell you how I'm going to vote because that's not what the hearing is about. Let's see. She was confirmed 96 to three. So three Republicans. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Three Republicans <laughs> refused to vote for her strictly because of abortion rights. That was their like given reason. And then <sighs> one person wasn't present for the vote. So that's why it's 99, not 100. Oh, that makes sense. Um, He was at like a funeral or something and wasn't present. But other than those three dissenting Republicans, everyone voted for her. And kind of afterwards, she said, they said, what kind of judge do you want to be? And she just said, I'll do the very best I can at the job. Mm-hmm. Um, and Clinton said, she won't move the court left or right. She'll move the court forward. Kind of that old line or whatever. So, Which is a good line. It's such it a Clinton is. line, though. It is, yeah. So she she's on the court, and I'm going to get into some cases in a second, but two things I'm going to note first is in 2006, 2006? In the year of our Lord, 2006. It's funny, because <laughs> later... literally what I just thought In 2006... <laughs> <laughs> that's like i because i'm a spaz i go back and listen to our old episodes so that i can highly criticize myself oh dang. And, and um when i said freptember oh yeah february or september i was like washing the dishes dish i can't even say it i was washing the dishes when i was re-listening to it and i was like you're a piece of shit yeah oh yeah that's me in bed at night like why'd you say it like that <laughs> didn't sleep for a week 2006 no oh my god that's so good oh god in 2006 sandra day o'connor retired and that meant at the time rbg was the only woman left on the court um and people always say that the next session so it had no women at the time is often seen as sort of when she began to like find and use her voice mm-hmm. so it became the first time she read dissents herself and that's when she started getting kind of really outspoken is when she was the the one woman left on the court did Uh, you know that she had a collar she wore specifically oh yeah when she dissented yes don't you i didn't know that yeah she had one for when she dissented she had one for when she was in the majority opinion she had one that she loved from south africa she had like a closet of collars for specific there were scenarios yes stunning yes so that's why cool. a lot of the like merch is a little collar it's her i descent collar yeah it makes perfect sense yep and then when stevens retired she became the senior member of the liberal wing 
of the court. And so that gave her the authority to assign dissent authorship. So when they were in the minority, she could say, I will write the dissent or somebody else will. Um, but she always very much felt that the liberal wing of the court should give off a unified opinion. Um, so as much as they could, they should all agree on what they were going to say and why and kind of be one voice. So the way I've done the rest of this, because I certainly can't go through every case that she's been on is I sort of split this out by topic. So okay. by different issues that there was cases where she wrote opinions. Um, and obviously I started with gender equality. I think we all know where she falls on that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But there are two big ones. So the first is United States versus Virginia. This is in 1996. And there's oh, a school yes. yeah, called the Virginia Military Institute with a male-only admissions policy. So it's like a military mm-hmm. school. They only let men in. Yeah, and VMI, right? VMI, yep. And yep. so mm-hmm. she argues that it violates the 14th Amendment to have any sort of sex-based policy, right? She says there has to be like a very specific reasoning for it, for right. that to make sense. Um, and they try to kind of settle, I guess. And VMI says, we're going to open a sister school like just for girls, right? So the same school, but for girls. And she basically says no on the precedent of separate but equal, that that's kind of the same thing. And she's like, you won't have the same facilities. You won't have the same training. You won't have the same opportunities. You can't open a separate school. And so she authors the opinion in that case that actually disallows them from only accepting men to their military institute um so that's because like just allow girls right exactly thanks you want to give them the same education just put them in the fucking school right so she does that one and then there's also ledbetter versus goodyear so in 2007 um this is lily ledbetter oops i scrolled lily ledbetter was suing her employer goodyear for paying her less and Mm -hmm. the court was not denying they paid her less or that that was wrong, right? The court was like, yeah, they shouldn't do that. But they argued that the way the law is set up, the statute of limitations, statute of limitations, began with each pay period. So when I got a paycheck, that's when it began, even though she didn't know at the time she was being paid less, right? So she had no way of understanding that, but they said that the statute of limitations had been passed because of when the checks were issued. And so they couldn't like rule in her favor. That's, yes. Um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg wrote a dissent that was like, but she didn't know. And also, even if she did, a lot of women don't speak up until it's accumulated to the point where like, mm-hmm. right, to say, hey, I got a dollar less an hour versus to say I made $30,000 less over two yep. years is yes. very different. Um, and this literally and- goes back to what I was saying earlier with like, nice women don't start arguments. Exactly. 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 So mm-hmm. she dissented in that and she sort of called on Congress and was like, y'all should should work on that. And so, Fix this. yeah, in 2008, Obama signed into law the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act. Um, And it is kind of partially credited to her being one of the people who gave them the idea for it. So this is kind of go- not decided what I feel is the right way in the Supreme Court. It gets done through legislation, but she has an mm-hmm. influence over it. Right. The next it's item... It's basically like a decision. Sorry. It's no, basically like a decision that then led to legislation. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. And so it's still named after that case and that woman. It just took right. an extra step. Mm-hmm. So then we'll talk about abortion rights. And I could 
spend years doing this. I think it's so interesting. But um, So she always vocally supported abortion rights and said mm -hmm. the government had no right to interfere and that it was a woman's choice. So she's always mm -hmm. been consistent on that. Um, but she actually was fairly critical of Roe v. Wade for hmm. a few reasons. Um, most of them kind of go back to this idea that she believed you should make these small foundational steps is that she thought Roe v. Wade was, Roe v. Wade was too broad and that it cut short some of the abortion movements at the time. So because Roe v. Wade is not actually a law specifically about abortion, it's about privacy, right? So it right. doesn't actually guarantee a right to, to choose something for your body or medical, blah, blah. It's a right to privacy, that what happens between you and your doctor is between you and your doctor, and the government can't right. change that. Mm -hmm. And she felt that that, A, missed the opportunity to put into place specific abortion laws, right? To say, you know, here's this law in Texas, that law is unconstitutional. Here's another right. law and set that precedent. And that because it was so broad, it became one big political target. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they do that. Like, she mentions like the March for Life every year on the anniversary and that it really kind of focused on the wrong things, that it shouldn't have been about privacy. It should have been about the rights of women. And that now all of the abortion cases that come are about these individual laws that were never established any precedent and right. not the rights of women. So she doesn't disagree with like the outcome of Roe v. Wade. It's she just, just like dis the way that they got there. Yeah, the way that they got there. And that like well, privacy isn't the basis. Right. Because it's really just for her, from what I'm understanding, it's like it's about bodily autonomy. Exactly. Like, you have the right to control your body. Like that's yeah. that's it. That's the law. The law is no one can tell me what I can and cannot do with my body. Right. And she so, actually, like in the yeah. 70s at the time of Roe, she had a case she was working on that she felt was like a better illustration and is what should have been taken to the Supreme Court. Right. And so it was a woman named Susan Strzok, who was a captain in the Air Force. She got pregnant while she was on duty, which was technically a violation of military regulations. Was um, she... This is not going to matter, but was she married? Like, was she? I don't know. Okay, okay. It just says she got pregnant while on duty and it was a violation of military regulations. I did not. I'm sure the gotcha. answer is somewhere and I just didn't read it. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, but she was suing to avoid being discharged from the Air Force. So they wanted to let her go. She said no. And at the time, abortions were legal on military basis, but struck herself, her religious beliefs prevented her from getting an abortion. So she didn't want to get one. And sort of the issue then involved her right to resist an abortion to avoid her discharge. Right? Mm, so it's kind of, again, flipping, flipping it on it, its head. Exactly. And so... Yeah. And like the quote I have is, it was a choice Ginsburg thinks would have made, would have better framed a woman's constitutional right as a choice no man would be required to endure. So like she only has to do this because the government is forcing her, but she actually doesn't want to. And they're trying to tell her she has to, to keep her job. And so it, again, is sort of flipping it where if you can set the precedent that you can't tell me I have to have an abortion, that creates law that you can't tell me I can't. Right. Um, and so she felt at the time that would have been a better way to establish that in the Supreme Court. Um, but she continues to to support abortion rights. She often writes dissenting opinions, particularly on a lot of the quote unquote like partial birth abortion bans. Mm -hmm. And she would always there get very technical. So she wouldn't cite like moral arguments. It was either a technical issue with the law that the studies they were using were bad or not well documented that they weren't right. focusing on women's health, that they were focusing on the wrong things. So she got very yeah, like, and technical like an, on abortion like, stuff. Yeah, she she doesn't use emotion. Right, exactly. She, she just uses, like, pure logic. Like, well, right. 
like this is what's happening as a result of this which is what's logically not correct or whatever how you would interpret that yeah it wasn't like a morality issue yeah um one other thing just overall international law is that she had like a disagreement with a lot of the conservative justices because she believed in using international law to influence our law and would cite times that we had done that and like taken from other countries and i think her work in sweden probably had something to do with this that Mm -hmm. she wanted to like learn from other systems um and she would sometimes support her opinions particularly ones on like affirmative action by saying well this is in accordance with an international treaty that we're a part of and this is what the whole world should be doing. doing the same thing yeah yeah um so that was one thing where she kind of differed from people Um, I have a note on search and seizure just because I thought it was interesting. So there was a 2009 case called Safford Unified School District versus Reading. And in the case, a 13-year-old girl was stripped down to her bra and underwear to be searched for drugs at school. Oh, my God. Um, And in this... I've never heard of this. Yeah. So in this instance, the... The girl won the case, basically, right? Like, Mm. they set a precedent that you could not do that. Um, Yeah. Ginsburg didn't write the opinion, but she's known to have heavily influenced her colleagues. And so there was a thing that she spoke at the time to them, basically, like, you don't understand what it is like to be a 13-year-old girl and have that done. um, And was able to influence them. And so even though that ruling comes down on her side that that wasn't allowed, the official ruling itself sets that precedent going forward, but it gave this school officials in the case qualified immunity because it basically said that at that time, the law wasn't settled, right? It wasn't oh, Jesus. Yeah, law. it wasn't like a thing yet, so they couldn't technically yeah. get them on Yeah, so it. like, this is yeah. the law now, but like, you guys aren't going to get in trouble. It's just, don't do that anymore. But moving forward, you will be. Exactly. Mm-hmm. But she was one of only two on the court who was like, no, we should actually let her sue the individuals, but she did not win that part. Yeah. Which, again, I get both sides, though. Yeah. Yeah. Both are, like, fair. Yeah. But that's so terrible. Yeah. Um, I'm going to come back. So then criminal justice is one where it's kind of mixed. And this is one where it came down to, like, she probably ultimately held opinions that, like, we would agree with and were to the left. But this was just not her focus. Right? She never authored the opinions in these cases this was not like her big thing. So she generally sided with the more liberal views of the court. So for rights for the incarcerated, um, defendant rights, things like that. Right. She also had a few that weren't as great. So like while she off- or while she voted often against like kind of cruel and unusual solitary confinement, she was not against like lifetime jailing for substance abuse. Or she would vote mm. for like things that put up unnecessary barriers for people convicted of felonies. So she was kind of generally good here, but had some downfalls. And this, again, was just not what she really focused on. So we don't have a ton of her opinions. She didn't author them. Um, But her votes are, like, mixed, generally fine. Sort of the same on race. So I talked a little bit about the law clerks. And she did eventually hire a single African-American law clerk as Supreme Court justice. Yeah. But and that came up a lot recently because a lot of her old law clerks were, were um, pallbearers at the funeral. And yeah. there was a picture of all of them. And someone was like, oh, basically everyone in this picture is white. Oh, yeah. no. Um, she is considered to have moved farther left over time. 
and to have took on like broader civil rights as part of her causes over time. Um, and again, I wonder if that has anything to do with her like chipping away method. It, yeah, it might, and it might just be which that she's I don't... exposed to more of it, right? Like, right, which more... I don't necessarily agree with. Like, it works in some cases, but again, it's so you know, you just marginalize so many other people. Yeah, it's like, yeah, yeah, and like I re- I found this one article that went through a bunch of issues and had scholars on those issues talk about where she fell. And so yeah. the the consensus here was like her understanding of racism and structural racism was very sound. She understood it the same way she understood gender discrimination and like did not condone it. She failed. But she also didn't the- really do much about. It. Yeah, she didn't focus yeah. on it. She kind of expected that that was somebody else's thing to do. And also in more modern things, she tended to struggle. Like she made some not great comments about Colin Kaepernick when that first happened. That Uh she did later go on to say she regretted and, like, wasn't understanding. But her understanding was sound, but she didn't always do the best. One of the places that's interesting that that kind of crosses over is the death penalty. And so she's pretty consistently against the death penalty. But early in her career, she, she wrote about the death penalty as both a very, like, racist and sexist institution. So she talks about it as basically being invented for the the purpose of killing black men who were accused of raping white women. So like the lynchings we talked about with Ida B. Wells, Mm -hmm. she cites that and she talks about why the reason, the reason at the time rape is considered so like horrible as opposed to now is that it's basically taking another man's property, right? Like you belong Mm -hmm. to your father or your husband and so to rape someone is to take that property rather than the reasons we think of it as awful now and so there was a quote from early on that she had the death penalty for rape is an outgrowth of both male patriarchal views of women no longer seriously maintained by society and gross racial injustice created in part out of that patriarchal foundation so i thought that was interesting because she's acknowledging and understanding both but sort of saying some of that racial injustice comes from gender inequality, right? I think she she tied them up a lot, kind of in her Yeah, head. and this is like what she did with earlier things, too, where she basically was like, these are supposed to quote-unquote benefit women, but in actuality, it just hurts us because you're just right. treating us like we're inferior or we're dependent or we're less capable or whatever it might be. Yeah. While you think you're helping, you're actually just hurting what the overall image of, like, women, you know. Yeah. And- our society is yep and so then the category i saved for last is uh, native american rights i wrote yeah. we're gonna get a little yikes here folks um mm-hmm. this is probably where she had the most consistently poor reputation yeah. and it does improve over time right like after she passed there was a lot of statements from like activists in the native american community who spoke very highly of her and were very like grateful for some of her more recent opinions Mm -hmm. but uh it's not always good so the first one is in 1997 um straight versus ai contractors she wrote the majority opinion which in essence denied tribal jurisdiction over tribal land so the case actually started with a car crash so somebody who was not a member of the tribe um caused a car crash on tribal land Mm-hmm. And Ginsburg basically said, well, the state's right of way, so whatever state it was in, they had a right of way, and that basically rendered the the land 
equivalent to non-Indian owned land, right? So that it was state land. So they Um, basically were able to like prosecute as a state as opposed to a tribe. Right. And so she like considered- I just want to make sure that's what- Yeah. Yeah, There was a precedent that had been set that allowed tribes to regulate the activities of non-members who have a relationship with the tribe, right? So the problem was this was tribal land, but not a tribal member. And so she sort of noted, well, the driver- worked for was working at the time for a company who had a relationship but the tribe can't regulate his activities right the victim had no the car accident victim had no relation to the tribe and so she said although quote those who drive carelessly on a public highway running through a reservation endanger all in the vicinity and surely jeopardize the safety of trial member tribal members Having a non-member go before an unfamiliar court was not crucial to the political integrity, economic security, health, or welfare of the three affiliated tribes. So basically, she was like, this should go to, like, non-tribal court, even though it was on tribal land. I wonder if that's because she felt like the idea of, like, a jury in a court would be, like, your peers. Yeah, I think possibly. Like that was her interpretation of it. I'm not saying I agree. I just right. wonder, because I know that there was, like, an instance, another one of her cases was, like, a woman who, she basically said, like, women shouldn't be optional in jury duty. Like, women should be forced to yeah. do it because they're part of society. So I yeah. wonder if, like, it's interesting that you brought that specific case up. I wonder if she was just a really staunch interpreter of, like, that type of jury yeah and that's what i agree with but yeah I if that's what it was yeah i'm not sure huh. and so then the other one that this is like the most talked about one is in 2005 there's an opinion called city of Sherrill versus oh i'm gonna say this wrong oneida indian nation of new york and she basically concluded oneida. i think it's on- oneida oneida thank you yeah only because i'm pretty sure there's a university okay that, and i'm pretty sure that's what it that's how it said. Okay, so we'll go with Oneata. But I still mispronounce Lenape and Lenape, so like I don't sure. know what the fuck I'm talking about. It's fine. <laughs> well, she said basically they couldn't revive their ancient um their ancient like autonomy over their own historical land. So she cited the Discovery Doctrine, which had been used in the past to grant ownership of Native American lands to like col- colonial government people. Yes, white people. <sighs> and so this tribe had lived in towns and grown crops and maintained trade routes and all this stuff. And this is not good. Um, I'm just going to read this like basically straight from Wikipedia, but yeah, like in her opinion, she says that the historic Oneida land had been quote converted from wilderness ever since it was dislodged from their possession. She also reasoned that quote, the long-standing, distinctly non-Indian character of the area and its inhabitants, and quote, the regulatory authority constantly exercised by New York State and its counties and towns justified the ruling. So she basically was like, oh, it's not Indian land anymore. Um, she also invoked a doctrine that basically said they took too long to ask, right? A quote, long delay in seeking judicial relief. Oh and reasoned God. that the dispossession of their land was, quote, ancient. Um, and this I'm this so created a precedent yikes. that got used all over the place <sighs> to, like, extinguish yeah. land claims. Yeah. Um, she did and if la- she said it, then huh, yeah. everyone could. Yeah. And she did later say that she regretted that more than any decision she'd ever made, like, in the court. Yeah. Um, yeah. So she did later, I think, come to realize that wasn't the best the best decision she'd ever written 
And even exactly like a year after that case, she offered a completely different opinion um, in Wagnon versus Prairie Band Potawatomi Nation. And in that case, she basically said that like a state tax on them would nullify their own tax authority and that she should have that. And she then like argued against her own precedent, right? So one of these precedents came up in another case years later and she dissented, even though it was like based on her own precedent. Mm. So she did, it seems, learn over time and kind of start to understand where she had made mistakes there, but they were not good decisions. Right. Um, she later suggested that the next justice should be um, a district court judge named Diane Humatua, who was a member of a, the Hopi tribe. Like she kind of tried the ultimate outcome that I found was scholars basically say she was pretty mixed and had some pretty bad decisions, but again, it improved over time. Yeah. Um, and she did learn. And again, most of the statements that came out after her death were pretty positive and like thankful. Um, but she definitely did some things that were not great on this. And a lot of it is, I think that idea that she went pretty far left over time. She started out very moderate and, and sort of shifted and, and grew in that sense. Yeah. Um, and I also think, too, the fact that she was the only woman for a while. Like, yeah, I feel like there probably must have been a part of her, too, again, where she was, like, prioritizing what she wanted to get done. And, like, right. not that that's not necessarily right, but, like, you know, it, it probably came down to, like, well, I'm not going to stir the pot until it's, like, a big thing that I want to stir the pot about. You know, yeah. it's, like... When you're in that kind of position of influence, I wouldn't even necessarily call it power because it's not like supposed to be power. But like when you're in that kind of influential position, like you really should be looking at what your impact can be in all senses. And it looks like over to like as she got older, she probably became one of those more like it kind of sounds to me like she became one of those like older women who just gives less and less of a shit. Kind yeah, of thing. basically, you know, yeah. Yep. And she's there is multiple times, like in the later years, that she would say something publicly and then be like, I shouldn't have said that publicly. You're right. Yeah, that time that she like shit on Trump, she was like, he's like an idiot or anything. Yeah, for she was like, and- she was like, I'm gonna move to New Zealand if he's president. And then she was yeah, like, and that was Barbara Walters was like, do you disagree with that? <laughs> she's like, did you really mean what you said? And she's like, you know, I just don't think I should have said anything. <laughs> yeah, she was like, that was ill advised. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so then again, I think she just was never, she never acted on emotion. Like she was just so hyper rational that it was like, almost sometimes you have to act on emotion, not necessarily act, but like behave on one. And then over time she started to behave on emotion. And then she was like, you know what? That's not what I'm supposed to do. Yeah, definitely. So then I have some stuff about outside the court. Um, just some kind of like fun facts and kind of what happened later in life. So she is believed to have been the first Supreme Court justice to officiate a same-sex wedding. So in 2013, she officiated a ceremony of the Kennedy Center president, Michael Kaiser, and John Roberts, who was a government economist. Um, So as far as we know, she was the first one to do that. And she always ruled with um, like same-sex marriage rights and things like that. Right, right. And then this was just a, a fun thing I learned. And earlier you made a like year of our Lord joke. And so it made me think of this too, is that <laughs> the Supreme Court bar had always formally inscribed its certificates with in the year of our Lord, whatever. And some yeah. Orthodox Jews opposed that. And they actually went to Ginsburg and asked her to object to it formally. So she did. And so since yeah. then Supreme Court bar members are now able to 
choose the inscription on their certificate. And so, I think, was that similar to their swearing in too? I think so, yeah. Because I remember watching her get sworn in and I was like, so help me her God. Like, yeah, what? Like, that's this super is, Christian. Yeah. yeah, I think this is the one that like she directly influenced, but I know they've made changes. Yeah. Otherwise. Um, I've also literally just written blah, 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 Scalia. Because there's this whole thing where she was like friends with Anton or Scalia. I don't even care if I say his name right. Um, They They were were in an opera together. Did you see that? Yes, they were friends. (laughs) They were in an opera. I'm supposed to think it's heartwarming. I don't. Uh, I just didn't like him. He, he was just bad. Never gave my me favorite any type of good vibe. My favorite tweet was one that was. It was like, it's so heartwarming how close Ginsburg and Scalia were. I hope she's up in heaven right now, wondering where he is. Oh my god! <laughs> and that's about how I feel about it. Like that's really funny. She was friends with him. She was friends with lots of very right wing people. That was a dumb idea. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> I feel like I had to acknowledge it, but I don't. I'm not like everyone. I'm like, and they were best friends, even though they didn't no, agree it, on anything. It was That's, so strange. No, she should like, interrogate reading that. about it and watching it. I was like, what's happening? I mean, I liked the opera thing. I thought that was adorable and hilarious, right. mostly because of the way that she acted in it. Like, yes, she's I don't precious. know if you saw the clips of it. Yeah. But it was basically like her shitting on Trump and like... <laughs> It was like talking about how she was like demanding a birth certificate from somebody, and it yes. was just like so good, and it was just oh, it was so great. subtle. Oh, yeah, but yeah, yeah no, he was. Yeah, don't I didn't understand that. I started at one point to list a couple like awards and recognition she got, and then it was too many, and I got bored. So basically, she <laughs> lots of things. Thing. Was, like too much, too much. <laughs> yeah, too many things, lots of things. Um, and then the sad note is that in 2010. Her husband, Marty, died of cancer. Um, It was four days after their anniversary, which is why I knew their anniversary was June 23rd. And I wrote, I will not be speaking about this further, but I actually am going to add one thing. Um, (laughs) Because I found a note. So he wrote like a letter to her. Oh, my God. At the end of his life. Oh, are you going to read it right now? Uh, Just this this one quote that I found. Okay. (laughs) My dearest Ruth. You are the only person I have loved in my life, setting aside a bit parents, kids, and their kids. And I've admired and loved you since the day we first met at Cornell. What a treat it has been to watch you progress to the very top of the legal world. Mm, He's the best. So he died in 2010, which is sad, but also considering he had cancer when he was so young, he did like live a very long time after that. Yeah. So I, I felt okay about that. I think uh, we have to just make a book of romantic things for Eric to say for his vows because I've gotten a lot of good yeah, compliments on quotes. that when we did uh, Pierre Curie's yes. love note to Marie. So maybe we need to compile some of the things that people have said to their wives. Yes. <laughs> like historical figures. Right. <laughs> um, And then, so right, not long after he died, Judge Rob- Justice Roberts stepped down. So she was 80 or 77. And that made her the oldest justice on the time, at the time. Mm -hmm. And it was rumored that she would step down just because of health and her husband had just passed. And I actually feel like I remember this. Yeah. So there was a lot of talk about if she would step down, but she said no. She said it helped her cope having something to do, right? Like being on the court. And she wanted to emulate Justice Louis Brandeis, who is a shout out. I went to Brandeis University. Oh, wow. Um, Where's that? Massachusetts, like right outside Boston. And so he oh, was. Oh, damn. The- you went to school up in Massachusetts? Yes. That's um, got to be super different from 
Florida. It was, it was great. I loved it. It's just too expensive to live there. Yeah, it's stupid expensive to yeah. live anywhere south, north of the Mason-Dixon line. It's yes. disgusting. Um, But he had served 23 years. And so she said she wanted to emulate that because he was the first Supreme Court justice or Jewish Supreme Court justice. And she did hit that milestone in 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, and she also cited some of the other like older guys who had served 35 years and things like that. And so she always said that as long as her mind was sharp, she wouldn't retire. Yeah. Um, there was a little bit of hullabaloo in uh, 2016 about whether she should have retired, but we're not going to address that because that's weird and sexist. Yeah. Um, she died yeah. the fourth oldest serving justice in history. So there was three people who were older than her on the court. Wow. I have a little health recap here. Um, mm. Just because the the cancer that she ultimately died of this year was not her first bout. It was her fifth. Right. Yeah. Um, She's so, been, this yeah. has been a while. Yeah. In 1999, she was diagnosed with colon cancer. So this was the first time. She did not miss a single day on the bench during her chemotherapy and surgery. And wow. it was after she recovered from that um, that bout with cancer that she hired a personal trainer named Bryant Johnson. Oh and my God, that's what my favorite thing. Yes, that's when she like for the rest of her wi- life worked out twice a week at the court with him. This is the guy who did push ups, push ups by her casket, which has very mixed results on the internet at this time. Um, yeah, because it's both nice and weird. It's a little. I of both. just, I thought it was weird, but yes, I. But I you know see- what they also worked together for so long. Like, what the? Who am I to judge? Right. Like, I see why for him it was probably nice, but to watch it looks weird. Yeah. Did uh-huh. you see the thing with like Colbert and what's his face? Uh-uh. <laughs> like, she's like working out. It's like all of her sweatshirts said like Super Diva on them. Yes, <laughs> I've seen pictures like that. <laughs> it's like amazing. Yeah, oh but God. she like loved working out. Yeah, she said that after she was diagnosed. I think it was like. She wanted to strengthen her mind. Like, she wanted to be stronger, yep. like, that way. Yeah, and she hit... I can't remember the exact number, but there was a goal that, like, by the time she was 80, she could do a certain number of push-ups and stuff like that. I just got to five push-ups not on my knees, and I feel like a motherfucking champion. Oh, so. I can't do one. <laughs> Props to her for, like, literally being... I mean, she probably weighed, like, the size, as much as my arm weighs, but, like... Yeah. Still. Tiny. Wow. Yeah. So it's 10 years after that, um... So then 2009, she then gets diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Um, Mm -hmm. She did take 10 days off for surgery and recovered well and then was back on the bench. God, 10 days. Right. So then five years later in 2014, she had a stent put into her heart after having some chest pain during a workout, which in that case, I need a lot of stents because if chest pain heart workouts a problem, then... I, yeah. I need to become a stent because apparently right? that's not supposed to happen. Yeah. We're also not in our 80s, though. So. True. <laughs> so that was 2014. So then in 2018, she falls and fractures a few ribs. Um, But that hospitalization, while she's there, um, they do a bunch of scans and things. And, you know, she's fine with her little broken rib. She goes back to work. And the scans come back and reveal that she had cancerous, like, um, cancerous nodules in her lungs. So (sighs) she then underwent a left lung lobectomy where they removed them. Um, And that was, so for the first time since she had joined the court, she missed an oral argument in 2019. I thought you said lobotomy. Oh Oh my my God, God. lobectomy. 
Okay. Oh my god. I literally was like, excuse no. me. Look back to what? me. This woman had a lobotomy? No. Like, I'm no. so sorry. I'm no. Like, they took the stuff I'm off like, her lungs. I'm furiously researching like <laughs> RBG lobotomy question mark? In 2019. <laughs> oh my god. No. So look back to me. But that was the first time she ever missed an oral argument. Oh shit. Hold on. Sorry. Speaking of oral arguments. I was just about to fucking mute them and then I just didn't get it in time. It's okay. So, okay, sorry. So go ahead. Um, so first time she missed oral arguments was then. Um, yes. So then in August of 2019, they announced again that she had just crea- um, completed some radiation treatment to to work on a tumor on her pancreas. And so by January 2020, they announced she was cancer free. But in February, it returned. That wasn't released to the public. So we did not know as of February that she was diagnosed with cancer again. She was receiving treatment and she reiterated that her position was she would remain a member of the court as long as I can do the job and I remain fully able to do so. Um, And then obviously on September 18th of 2020, she passed away of pancreatic cancer and she gave that very sad little statement about like her dying statement being don't pick a new judge until there's a new president basically. Um, But she died actively on the court. Um, She was both the first woman and the first Jewish person to lie in state at the U S Capitol, which is crazy. I I don't like, sure. I love 2020. Have we come this far? Yeah. Like have we come this far and it's not. Yeah. So both the first woman and the first Jewish person. And I mean, when you look at the list of people, it's like very few people, right? It's mostly presidents, but still, still. Yeah. Um, and then I literally, my last bullet point is just like some bad shit because that's what happened after that we're not going to talk about because partially because we, we're already in it. <laughs> yeah. And we also don't know how it ends. We um, don't know how it ends. This is actually the first time we've done an episode where we don't know how the fuck it ends. Yeah. So that is, is Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, she died when she was 87. And again, still on the Supreme Court, trucking along. Yeah, and I mean, I think it was most powerful when she said that she would serve until she felt like she no longer could. And I truly believe that until her dying breath, she believed that she could continue serving. And I think she could yeah. have. Like, yeah, I agree. How many times have over the last like year have we been like, please no, God, like, yeah, like don't you got this? And then she rallies, and you're like, yes, like it's. I mean. It's what I think for me, the most devastating thing, and I'm not a particularly religious, I'm not religious. I, I mean, sorry, mom, I know you're not listening, but like, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not like I was raised Catholic. And so I just, I don't really have any ties to that. I've definitely become a lot more just like spiritual over the years. And I'm trying to kind of discover that for myself, but like, it breaks my heart thinking about how she knew that her death was going to lead to complete turmoil like and and the fact that she couldn't and i've been reading a lot too about like you know don't like christianize her like Mm -hmm. rest in peace thing but like it's to me i feel more upset that she couldn't die in peace yeah and i mean and again i don't know if she did maybe she was like i'm ready to go but like i just feel like there's a part of me that was like she knew what her death would lead to and that's gotta be like devastating right yeah and 
I normally cut this out if it doesn't sound like I want it to. Because I'm trying yeah, to. Yeah. <laughs> I've, I'm generally a person who's very, like, accepting of the concept of death. And usually when somebody elderly dies, like, that's sad for the people who knew them and whatever. But I'm not right. normally, like, what a tragedy. Like, we we get old and we die. And that's, like, a fact of life that I'm pretty good with. Mm-hmm. But I'm not actually good with this one because I needed you to not be dead. Yeah. <laughs> like, I know. For the most part, I, I would be like, okay, well, they lived, like, a good life, and they did this, and blah, blah, blah. But I'm like, no, not not that one. Not... Yeah. I mean, it's like... Yeah. I mean, she had a lot of issues. Yeah. And there were a lot of things that we, as white women, benefit from because of her. But I would say that overall, I mean, the world, the country would not look the way that it does without, like, the time that she put into it. Right. Definitely. So I just can't believe that we're doing this episode because I, I know. <laughs> this was a real downer, guys. I'm really <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Oops. Oops. Hopefully Oops. you laughed at some points because I'm probably going to go cry now. Oh, right. So. <sighs> All right. Well, let's hope to whatever sky wizard you pray to. That <laughs> whatever sky wizard. To, a side note is that, that the we mo- don't have to do any more of these like emergency special episodes right? because my heart can't fucking take it. No. The most Brandeis thing I've ever received because Brandeis is a primarily Jewish school mm-hmm. um, and it's also a very liberal school and so I got invited to a shiva for Ruth Bader Ginsburg and I was just like this is the most awesome. the most Brandeis thing that's ever happened to me. That's incredible. It was. I did not get to go. I had. I was gonna say, did you go? <laughs> no, it was a friend's birthday dinner. Uh, okay. That I was already at, but that does. That's that's Brandeis. Um, wow. Because I'm cool. I'm Jewish, but I'm not a good Jewish person. Like I don't actually know anything about it <laughs> at all. Uh, yeah, like practicing. Right. So I would have been interested to go because I've never attended a shiva, but I did not get to for that one. Yeah. But then, of course, my mom, because um, my friend who ran it has visited and, like, my mom loves her. And so my mom was like, we can pop in and say hi. And I was like, I don't think that's what a shiva is. I, don't I think- actually, you, I've been to a shiva. And I think, actually, you technically can. Like, I've never sat in it because, obviously, yeah. I'm not Jewish and I don't have well, any Well, they were I, doing, I've like, the mortars condition stuff. And I was like, I don't think popping okay. in on Zoom to be like, yeah, oh, my no, God, that's hi, not Emily. A- <laughs> yeah, no, that's not a pop-in kind of thing. But right. I attended one, like, to drop off food and... Like yes. pay respects and stuff. So, yes, definitely not a pop in kind of thing, <laughs> right? But all right. I'm well, fine. thank you for listening. Yes. We're really sorry that she is the topic of our episode because we were hoping to not have to do her for a really long time. Yes, I'm also sorry to my friend who I called and woke up from a nap when she died and just kept saying something bad happened for like two minutes before I actually got it out. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, um, but I mean, our- you and I responded pretty quickly. I texted you. Oh yeah, we were straight, texting pretty much right away. But I had a friend that, as soon as I saw it, I called her. I didn't know she was asleep, and I was just like, I have to tell you something. Something yeah. had happened like four times before I actually said it, and so I'm sure she thought yeah. I was like dead. But I texted my friend at. <laughs> she thought you were texting from beyond the grave. Well, like, hey, I just want to let you know, I actually just died. <laughs> I don't know. My mom and my mom and I sound alike. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> All right, friends. Go pour one out for good old Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Yep. Or don't. But or don't. either way, you can, uh, if you're a woman, you can thank her for all the things that right. we Having probably Having a credit card 
Owning a house. Go spend some, go accrue some debt. I don't know. <laughs> Great plan. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm going to do. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, no, I'm going to work out. I'm going to finish my 100th day of a workout. Oh, so. yeah. She'll love that. Yeah. So I will be all the sweat debt. is going to be for the next Ruth Bader Ginsburg. <laughs> yes. I will, I'll accrue the debt. You work out. It'll be even. Perfect. All right. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to What the History podcast. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at WT History Pod. You're also welcome to email us at whatthehistorypodcast at gmail.com with topic suggestions or questions. Please subscribe to the podcast so that upcoming episodes show up in your feed and we will talk to you soon.